Hey everyone, I'm really excited to announce that I have launched a new club on Clubhouse. You've probably heard me talking a lot on this podcast about, or, or any of the, sorry, in the newsletter, uh, about conversations that are hosting there. And so this club uh, really is just a formalization of, of a place where you can go, where you can find all the talks that we're having on um, on various issues. And the idea behind the club is it's really uniting people who are believe that we can no longer invest our wealth in ways that you know don't have any regard for the impact it has on people on our planet. If you're listening to this podcast, I suspect you'll agree with that. And I see the club being focused around two real streams. Uh, one stream would be all of the stuff that we're talking about on this podcast. So the ways in which we can use our wealth in creative, you know, new ways to positively impact people and planet. So it would be things like impact investing and ESG investing and blended finance, social enterprise, venture philanthropy, conscious consumerism, regenerative or circular economy, those types of things. And on the other stream, I see really that being about wrestling with the big social and environmental challenges of our day, because you can't solve a problem you don't understand. And these things are really, really challenging. So we'll be discussing things like climate change and climate justice, wealth inequality, systemic racism, modern slavery and human trafficking, women's rights and gender equality, plant-based foods and cultured meats, these types of, uh, of issues, and the list goes on and on and on. So visit us at kindwealth.club, and you can see information there. The, the page is pretty crude right now, but I, what I'm hoping to do is get a calendar up there that'll show what events. Um, actually, by the time you're listening to this, I'm hoping it'll be live so that you can see what events are coming up and then you can come join us. Um, those conversations, again, are being held on Clubhouse. It's only available on iOS right now. So you're limited for the time being, but they're working furiously on an Android version. If you need um, access to the the app is still by invite right now. And so if you need an invitation, please reach out to me. I'd love to have you brought onto the, the platforms. You can come participate in these conversations. And the idea again with these are that they're conversations. You're participating. You're not just sitting there listening like a podcast. And that's what I love about this uh, medium. And so you'll see, you're going to notice I'll, I'll be sharing some of the recordings of those conversations through this podcast um, platform. So you'll get to listen in if you're not able to participate yourself or if you miss it. Secondly, I'll just say congratulations. The Impact uh, Assets listed its top 50 impact managers recently, and a number of the previous guests from this podcast and, and other Canadians um, were on the list. Uh, so examples, Jonathan Hara from Marigold, who's a previous guest, um, Jeffrey Sear from Raven Indigenous Capital Partners, Alexa Blaine from Deetkin, we're all on the list, Andy Posner from Capital Good Institute, Rahana Nathu was one of the judges uh, selecting the, the winners, um, who was a previous guest. So there's a bunch of these folks um, I've posted on social media about it. And we're having actually an event on Clubhouse. We're going to get a bunch of them together and just have a little social gathering and celebration. They'll update us on like what they're working on right now and what they're really excited about. I know Raven Indigenous Capital had some real big news uh, recently, which is great, uh, closing out their, their fund, um, their fundraising. And there'll be an opportunity for you to do some Q&A. So if you want to engage with any of these managers and ask questions, come join us. It's going to be March 24th from 8.30 to kind of 9.30 or 10 p.m. We'll just sort of see how the, the conversation's going and how the energy is at that time of night. But uh, I hope you'll uh, come join us in Clubhouse. With that, let's get on to the podcast. 
You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 26 of the Impact Investing Podcast. For decades, Sub-Saharan Africa has been a hotspot for foreign investment and international aid. It has also been subject to the kind of philanthropy that is sometimes more destructive than helpful. And as an impact investor, it's imperative to understand what that type of development and philanthropy looks like and how to avoid it. Africa has also been facing funding challenges in recent years. Even before the pandemic, the continent was seeing a decline in foreign direct investment. In fact, investment flows were expected to drop by 25% by the end of 2020. Today, the majority of available funding is streamlined to either large corporations or small micro-enterprises, leaving a major gap for the companies in between. This is often referred to as the missing middle of financing. So what does it mean to start an impact fund that makes a real impact for African communities? To find out, we sat down with David Harley, Jonathan Wilson, and Kwabana Awusa Ajay, the minds behind Third Way Capital. Launched in 2020, Third Way Capital is an early-stage impact fund investing in African small and medium-sized enterprises, or SMEs. Their strategy is to invest in financial structures that make lasting change, alleviating some of the funding challenges that African SMEs and entrepreneurs face. During this episode, we discuss what goes into starting an impact fund. Since David, Jonathan, and Kwabana have all lived or grown up in Africa, we also talk about the importance of truly knowing the environment you're investing in. Plus, we talk about how impact investors can identify opportunities and gaps, validate their impact with outcome-oriented measurements, and break the mold of traditional fund structures. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where we discuss the specific kinds of companies that Third Wave Capital is looking to invest in. With that, let's get on to the podcast. All right. David, Kwabana, and Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, to have this um, episode. I think it'll be interesting for listeners to hear about the journey of uh, folks like you who are going through the process of setting up an impact fund. And who knows, maybe it's going to inspire some people to, to copy you and try to do something uh, similar. So can we just start? Can each of you give a bit of a introduction? Who are you and what's your role with Third Way Capital? Sure, I'll start. Uh, my name is David Harley. I am Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of Third Way Capital. I'm Jonathan Wilson. So my formal title is Chief Impact Officer. And along with the other guys, I'm a co-founder at Third Way Capital. Great. Great. And my name is Kwabna Ousuijay. I am the Chief Investment Officer for Third Ray Capital, um, based down in Accra, Ghana. So what is Third Way Capital and what are you guys hoping to, what kind of impact are you hoping to have and where? Or just the elevator pitch for it. Sure. So Third Ray Capital is an impact investment firm, which is very much based on a venture, look, venture firm's outlook towards impact based in sub-Saharan Africa, starting in Ghana, which is where I'm from and where Kwabna currently lives. General idea is to take high 
outperforming late state, let's call them SMEs, small and medium enterprises with good leadership, with good values, who just need a bit of help with finances and, and capital and to go to go alongside them in their journey and help them to scale. It's a big challenge in, in the African continent, finding capital within a certain range. And uh, we're looking to be one of the first funds out there that starts to try to address that. Very cool. So maybe let's let's dive into a little bit of that. Like, where did the idea for this stem from? Was this come from one of you? Was it a conversation between the three of you? And then, like, what point and how did you guys come together around this idea? Sure. So it's interesting. Kwabna and I have actually spoken along these lines for a few years now. A, I think about four years ago, I was over in Europe doing doing an MBA, and he tried to rope me into what was his venture fund, which is going to be called Waterbrook, I believe, and. For me, for personal reasons, I couldn't get involved at that point. But it really meant that by the time we got started, the relationship between himself and I was there. And he'd done a lot of fleshing out of what it would look like to actually start to address the capital gap. Jonathan and I, it came from a different angle. I think our friendship developed along other lines. Um, Certainly, we both have a big heart for the continent. Jonathan's lived there for several years. I grew up there. But I think he was going through his own process and it, you know, it more recently clicked for him. I think he's, he'll tell you a bit more about his background that he could really do some really interesting things using the, the channel of capital, using the lever, if you want, of capital on the continent. He's been involved in different ways. And I think over the last few years, our conversation and conversations he's had as well with others has started to move in that direction. And things just came together at the right time for us, uh, I think, in terms of things like as weird as COVID happening this year that have given us the time and, and just the space to be able to think about the sorts of things we've been talking about for years now. Yeah, that's really cool. You've, so you've alluded to this as you've gone through here. Maybe we can go through with each of you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and experience as it relates to this, this context. Because it's it does sound like you've got really an interesting and complementary set of backgrounds. Maybe just in the interest of, of mixing it up, Jonathan, why don't you sort of start with what you're bringing to the table here and experiences you bring in? Sure. <clears throat> Thanks, David. So I grew up in Southeast Asia, but specifically on the island of New Guinea. So my mom and dad were working out there for about 20 years in terms of their career. And most of that time I was there with them. That was very formative for me in a number of different ways. It rooted in me a passion for indigenous culture. It rooted in me a passion actually for for wilderness and the environment. And those things were going to be, yeah, foundational for me for the rest of my life. To shorten the story, I, after a detour through the UK to go to university and then coming to Canada and doing a master's here, I ended up in South Africa where I worked in political mediation in conflict zones for a couple of years. And then that kind of morphed into multi-stakeholder consultation type work with business, government, community leaders, churches, and so on. But it was through that that I began to recognize that a lot of aid and development work that I was seeing or that even my own organization was a part of was not sustainable or effective in the long term because it was operating externally to the place where it actually mattered, which is the marketplace. And that was probably the spark that got me moving in this direction. 
again, to jump a chapter, I, I moved to Canada in 2006 with my South African wife and kids and began what I've been doing for the last 12 years or so, which is 14 years, which is a management consulting practice. And so a lot of what I do with companies is around business model innovation, is around strategy, but the underlying thing is all about systemic change, always. That's what I encourage companies to be to be thinking about both externally and internally. And so when David and I met about three years back, it coincided with my exposure to impact investors, which had begun around the same time. And so there's this sort of streams of influence all coming together in my background, meeting David, meeting these impact investors and realizing that if I was going to be part of systemic change in the marketplace, it needed I needed to pay more attention to the capital side and not just the consulting side. So that's really what pushed me or gave me impetus when David started talking to me in literally the week before lockdown this year. So that's how I that's how I on-streamed into uh, Third Way Capital. And just because I know a, a, a bit of your background, like your growing up, it was quite a, just unpack that experience a little bit. That was quite a, unique experience. That wasn't just like you were passing through, <laughs> you were deeply uh, ensconced yeah. in the local communities. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so we lived in a community called the Yali people, which is right in the central highlands of New Guinea. And yeah, it was, we lived in a village. Actually, we, we lived in two over the course of those 20 years, but we lived in a village and very often we were the only outsiders living there very much among the people i i did go to boarding school in terms of my formal education but i consider life in the tribe like the other half of my education so the language was nobody spoke an outside language you spoke the tribal language those were my friends they're still my friends i still go back there but in those 20 years or so what I think has been very impactful for me is the transformation that I saw in that tribal community, which really showed me that if transformation is done from a position of, or is initiated in a sense from within rather than imposed from without. Yeah. Obviously people from without are there and in a service capacity, but, and it's done in a way that is honors and respects the intrinsically good things within a culture. Amazing things can happen. Mm -hmm. And the dysfunctional and broken parts of a given culture, yeah, those need to be addressed along the way. But, yeah, so I saw a transformation happen to the degree that I would say from a social perspective, not necessarily medical, but from a social perspective, it's probably a healthier place now to raise my kids than in the mm -hmm. West. Mm -hmm. And yet when I was growing up, there was cannibalism, there was warfare, there was women were very badly treated, and all those things are pretty much gone. So Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's always struck me. I think the, I think this has always been one of the criticisms or, or one of the weak points for, for certain nonprofits, humanitarian organizations, but I think is even w maybe more problematic among impact investors because you bring the kind of private sector for profit sector in and, and there's a sort of arrogance and this mindset, this colonial mindset that's just, oh, here's how we do things and here's how we're going to solve all these problems and fix it all rather than listening and understanding and trying to work with recognizing that there are different ways of knowing and being and that we don't have all the answers and it, change 
A, it's just more more important to understand. Like I, I wrote a piece, I can't even remember now the the title of the blog piece, but it was like if, if you're really gonna if you're really an ally of any group of people, you can't really be an ally unless you really understand what their challenges are and what they want for themselves, rather than we're gonna come in here and tell you how to fix everything. You don't even know what they value. So how can you know what improvement looks like if you don't know what they want to see themselves? So I think that's like what impact investing in particular needs a healthy dose of. I think that the humanitarian sector as a whole is a lot better at that over the years. And uh, and so in some ways, the impact investment sector is starting from scratch there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you give us talk to us about your background and what you're bringing to the table here? Yeah, sure. My background is in project finance infrastructure, project finance specifically. So I started out working for GE Capital, raising debt and equity for large-scale infrastructure projects across Africa. So in power, in healthcare, um, a bit of oil and gas, and a bit of rail transportation as well. And at some point in my career, I was at that stage where coming off of the, the global financial crisis in 2008, you saw a lot of people of West African descent, Ghanaian, Nigerian, move back once they had lost their jobs in Wall Street or whatnot and start to pursue entrepreneurial interests locally. At the same time, you had a surge of people who may have stayed in Ghana and grown up locally who were also trying their hands at new innovative business models. But it, very, it became very clear to me fairly quickly that those um, types of businesses and those types of entrepreneurs were struggling to um, find the capital to scale their businesses. And so I quickly thought to myself, can I bring my skill set, which I at the time was using to raise debt and equity for infrastructure projects from the likes of development finance institutions, from banks, private equity funds and whatnot to bear on smaller ticket transactions. And so that's what I set out to do and to explore that space. And since then, the I've been particularly interested in that space. I've continued not in the, within the context of a fund, but more of a, as a consultant, so helping SMEs on a case-by-case basis, helped a number of them raise um, capital, which I have then gone on to see them use to employ more people, buy better machines, scale their businesses, export their products, get stocked in the likes of um, Whole Foods and Walmart and things of that nature. And so I'm of the view that while large ticket infrastructure investments and investments of that nature are very important to the overall growth and development of emerging economies like the ones um, like Ghana's and the ones we find across Africa, when it comes to impacting lives and impacting people, we cannot underestimate the impact that getting the right type of capital and the right type of funding to SMEs can have. And that's why I'm very passionate about what we're doing here at Third Way Capital and our ability to solve some of the problems in that area. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into that a a little more deeply as we we go here. But you're, so you're from Accra, you're in Accra now, but you're from Accra originally? That's right. So I I was born and raised in Accra. Throughout my life, I spent, I was educated here, went to college here, went to a college called the Shesi University. Shout out to Shesi University, great university. But work has taken me all over the continent. So I've lived in Lagos, Nigeria, in Johannesburg, South Africa, um, in Nairobi, in Abu Dhabi, in Stamford, Connecticut with GE, and in London, the UK as well. But this is where I call home. This is where my wife is from. And hopefully this is where I will be raising my family. 
Awesome. It sounds like you've had quite a career already and you're a young guy, but relatively young guy. I think a lot of people probably listening to this podcast may never step foot in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, what type of change and what type of opportunity? I know that's such a big question, but what do you see as the promise there? And I, I imagine it's along the lines of getting capital at the right hands, just what you said, but talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. In answering that question, I think the, the first thing that needs to be addressed is I think so in my career, I think one of the fights that I've constantly had to fight is that at least if you you know read the risk re- assessments and risk reports and whatnot, the continent's on, on fire and you can't do any business here. That couldn't be further from the truth. Absolutely. Africa is a continent of 54 countries and there are pockets of, of turmoil and violence and war and what have you. But by and large, there are countries where ultimately there are businesses that are thriving and they're they're doing very well. And so you can talk about countries like Ghana, like Senegal, Kenya, like South Africa, where there are pockets of issues. I give you that, but they're growing. And I think where the opportunity really exists is you've got a very you've got a growing middle class that increasingly has the purchasing power to buy products of that a typical middle-class family or middle-class person would buy. Unfortunately, what's happening is that as the middle-class grows, it actually presents a problem for African economies and African countries, which is that because local production isn't growing and scaling up enough to produce the products that these consumers, this new consumer class would like to buy, almost everything then has to be imported. Okay. And that presents a balance of trade problem for countries across the continent. But that also presents an opportunity for any investor that says, if there are consumers that I know are buying this product and I can deliver it to them in a localized context, either made locally, made cheaply, made in, in, in according to local context, then they'll be willing to buy this. That presents an opportunity. But coupled with that is that for the last decade, as an African that spent a lot of time all over the world growing up and seeing the world change, I would say that there was a time where it wasn't very cool to be African. But if you speak to any person on the continent or any person in the African diaspora who's living in New York or living in London or perhaps even to a lesser extent, to some extent in in Toronto, you do have a, what's happened is that's changed over the last decade or so. And I think that's happened as African art and culture has, through the internet, through social media and whatnot, has come to the fore where it's not uncommon to see a pop star from Ghana or from Nigeria on the same song as somebody from the US or what have you. Now, the byproduct of that is that there is a demand for African products and services in the diaspora. I say that internationally, so in in Europe, in the West, wherever, what have you. That is A, amongst the, Ghan- the Ghanaian and African communities there, and B, amongst the people that may not be of African descent in those communities, but have g- grown an affinity or a, a taste for products coming from the continent. And so this is everything from skin and beauty products to health and superfoods to clothing and music and art and what have you. And so that ex- export opportunity is huge as well, and it's not being tapped to anywhere near its full potential. And if I suggest, if we were just to focus on these two areas, i.e. an opportunity to produce um, locally what the growing African middle class wants to consume, 
and an opportunity to export internationally the products and services that people in the West want to consume from Africa. There, there are huge opportunities on both fronts that I think all investors ought to be looking at. That's great. I appreciate that. And David, so give us your, your background. Sure. It's hard to match up with these guys. So I grew up in Ghana, as I mentioned, lived there. Well, actually spent a bunch of my childhood in Switzerland. My mom moved when I was 14. I say that because I, I grew up within the, the context of the United Nations and its agencies. That's where she worked. That's where a lot of my community was. So I actually grew up very much feeling as, as though those sorts of agencies would have the biggest say in terms of where African countries were going to go. And just being, just having proximity to that kind of thinking, development thinking. As time went by, I, I wouldn't say I became disenchanted with development thinking. It's imperative. It's highly important. But I, I also came to understand the limits of a, a, a certain lens on development, if you like. So moved to Canada for my undergrad, did a, a mechanical engineering undergrad, worked for six or seven years and finally decided I had enough of engineering and went overseas to Madrid, Spain to pursue my MBA. The school that I went to, i.e. business school, has a big emphasis on entrepreneurship and developing entrepreneurs. I suppose I fell in love with entrepreneurship then, just that way of that way of thinking about business as being nimble, as being fluid, as solving problems, creating real value. But I also left with a real sense that this was the sort of thinking that was most needed in, in the continent that I come from. So following that, I started an online uh, web-based mentorship service for African entrepreneurs called Think Startup, which I run for a couple of years with a board of about five fellow MBA grads. And that was good. It was, we built some good relationships, but it was more than good. It was informative. It, it, it told us in no uncertain terms that the financing gap was still huge, that whatever you can do for these businesses on the advice side of things, if you can't follow that up with some capital very quickly, uh, things grind to a halt. So I moved back to Canada, have been back here for the past three years or so, and worked worked a uh, regular job running an engineering business. I say regular. I suppose all jobs are regular, but the really exciting thing for me is, is, is again, creating companies. And I would emphasize that I think between the three of us, yes, we're trying to do something really meaningful and something really needed, but we're also passionate about the nuts and bolts of what this is, of coming alongside business people and helping them create value. So I finished off with the last company I was at last July, I think, and it was so searching time for me. Um, Little did I know that some of this stuff had already been incubating within me. So started to put out some feelers for people in sort of the private equity impact space, which is how I met you, obviously, David, and Mm -hmm. spent six months just in that soul searching phase and taking any conversation I could take to really understand what the landscape was like from the perspective of Canadian impact, impact community, impact investors, and also just run of the mill traditional investors as well. I came out of that period feeling like, there was still some gaps to be filled, certainly. Probably, I have a lot of confidence in the team in, in, our, in our experience as far as operationally. I have a lot of confidence in the team in our experience financially. We take, to me, all the boxes, 
but when it comes down to it, it's there's a big chunk of it that comes down to the relationships that you have in the investor community in whichever locale that you are. So being in Canada, it was always going to take some time to start to build that community. And so while we've been building the fund and while we've been running models and, and building relationships with pipeline companies, et cetera, we've also been doing a lot of hard work in building these relationships that we believe will be long-term relationships because those are the sorts of relationships that we're looking for with investors. So I've skipped, I've skipped over a little bit. Jonathan's right. It was a week after COVID that he and I, a week before COVID and the lockdown in Canada, at least, that he and I met and just, I told him about where I was going. And honestly, coming to that meeting, I, I had a strong sense that he would have an interest in it. It was a friendly meetup, but I came with ulterior motives, that's for sure. And he wanted some time to think about it, gave him that time. But I think it was clear that Jonathan brought something to the group that just would be hard to, just that balance of having worked in, in, in for-profit and non-for-profit environments and seeing the ramifications of business beyond just the bottom line, like actually seeing them as opposed to just read a report on them was just something that we needed and someone that could think be, you know, just didn't have those boundaries that a lot of people from pure business backgrounds come into anything with, it, with these lenses that they've gained over the course of their careers. And so Jonathan and I started, it was a two-man show, I think, for the first two months. And again, even over this period, I'll be honest and say Kwabna was a guiding hand in helping us develop. He wasn't officially on board yet, but I needed data. I needed an understanding of where things were in 2020 in Ghana. And he provided a lot of that. And as fortune would have it, things ended with his company in and around the time that I was ready to pull the trigger and ask him to join. And so again, just things clicked for us. And, and he's been on since mid-June and it's, it's been seamless. And at the moment, as of today, we're, we're six weeks into our first round of, of investing. And that's, that's a story. Sorry, six weeks into? Our that. first round of, sorry, our first round of, our first fundraise, sorry, our seed round. Yeah. Okay. Talk a little bit about the, and whoever wants to answer this, go ahead, the impact focus. So this is about getting not only some your advice, which you're all capable of, of providing, but capital into the hands of SMEs in, in Ghana. Are you focused on uh, particular industries? I'll, I'll start with this, and then I think Jonathan would probably have something to chip in here. We aren't focused on particular industries. The industries are criteria, I would say, but there aren't the criteria because for us, it's got to be about the leadership. It's got to be a values-led alignment where if I, we felt as though if we went industry first, we would lose out on some really great companies with really exceptional leadership. And so we start with the leadership. On the other hand, we understand that certain industries have greater potential to affect outcomes of the community in which they're located. And so down the line, as we look at criteria, that will certainly play a part where we'd emphasize an industry that had uh, supply lines that meant that, for instance, local farm workers might have, might have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. So that's how we look at that. Again, in terms of impact, Everything we've read and everyone that we've talked to and all of our instincts are, have told us that impact has to be internally generated. It has to be a conversation with the businesses 
that we are working with in the communities in which they live. It can't be something where we create a list and say, here's 17 boxes we want to tick and let's do them. Let's find companies that are willing to say that they will because the anecdotes are are plentiful. It, It just doesn't work. And what really does work is coming alongside these leaders who often honestly really have a heart for their communities and really deeply understand because you have to understand Africa is a deeply communal place. It's what everyone grows in. It's this bedrock of what it isn't just about doing for self, but for the person next door. So it isn't hard to sell them on that. It's the real task is helping them to understand how to go about doing this in a way that's sustainable and is measurable. Would you add anything to that, Jonathan? Yeah, obviously a conversation around impact can become a half day conversation just all on its own. But what I would add to that is within the field of impact investing, I think typically what is meant by impact is the uh, sustainable development goals that the UN has established. And those are useful, but we're looking at it through a slightly different lens. So what we're really chasing after in terms of, maybe I'll turn describe it in terms of inputs and outputs uh, or inputs and outcomes where the marketplace is an input. It is here, it is in China, it is you know, wherever you happen to be. And what we're trying to do is change the game of how the marketplace actually functions. And we think that's just as valid here in North America as it is in Sub-Saharan Africa. It just happens to be that we want to concentrate our efforts in Sub-Saharan Africa. But When you look at the financial crash that happened in 2008, where questionable business practices led to not just knocking the markets, but it actually led to a destruction of value. Milder versions of that are being performed all the time by businesses operating in in substandard ways that are looking for the quick buck, so to speak. So we believe that there's just, in general, a wholesale, a need for a wholesale rethink and a reimagination of how the marketplace, I don't mean financial markets, but just the marketplace works. The impacts of that in in the sub-Saharan setting, of course, there are some specific things that we need to be chasing after. And one of them is economic, uh, that on its own, quite apart from environmental uh, or social impacts. So on the economic side, You've got a zone that, as Guavin has been describing, that has huge potential. And yet what ends up happening in terms of Western interventions is you've got tons of money coming in at the upper level of an economy. So government loans, for example, that are directed towards infrastructure. Large corporations will focus in that. Then you've got many organizations operating right down to the grassroots levels. And, And the result is that you have what is usually called the missing middle with regards to the absence of capital for small, medium enterprises. So where the ticket sizes that are typically being undertaken in sub-Saharan Africa might be around 7 million per deal size, what is really needed is ticket sizes of half a million or up to a million. And so that's a missing middle in terms of capital, but it's also creating a missing middle in terms of the role of small, medium businesses in driving an economy. So just dealing with that alone is, I would say, is we we could put aside the SDGs and just focus on that alone. 
But we are obviously going to be concerned about environmental and social factors, and there are many of them to take into account. So it'll be very much a bespoke approach where a given business needs to be assessed against what are the levers of systemic change that this business can be contributing to or pulling on if we grow it. And we could go into further detail around that, but I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's interesting. The, so just for people who are listening and may not be familiar, ticket size is the kind of average or the investment an equity fund might make into a business, the amount of capital it would in, inject for whether that's a loan or you're taking equity, taking ownership in that business. And this this missing middle, as, as Jonathan pointed out, is you've got people willing to lend or invest big amounts and people willing to lend or invest tiny little amounts like microfinance and $50 loans, $100 loans. But the, the middle is this gap. And I think one of the reasons why that's such an important part of the curve to be missing is that's where even in the developed world, most net new job growth all, almost all net new jobs in Canada, the U.S., and developed countries uh, come from small and medium-sized businesses because large, massive corporations tend to shed as many jobs as they create. Of course, you need them. They're the kind of backbone of a lot of the jobs, but the new job growth is coming from the small and medium size. And when you lack access to capital, you lack access to for uh, a vibrant number of small, medium businesses that can go on and employ people. So if I have to kind of break this down and summarize it, this is like the impact of this is primarily job creation and economic growth through financing these small and medium sized businesses that otherwise have very little place to turn to raise capital. Is that fair? Yeah. And I would add to that, <clears throat> that obviously Obviously, as we working with a given company, we're looking at well, what are its products and services and what benefits do those create for the consumer or maybe they're not for a consumer. Maybe they're contributing to the they're part of a supply chain in an industry. But so they're a part of a value chain. Can I just pause for a second? Yeah, sure. If this helps, let me just interject. I, want, I did want to say one other additional thing. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you the question as you were talking about the impact focus, like, what makes this different than just a private equity fund? Yeah, I, I'm happy to start there. Traditional private equity, often the terms are can be pretty crippling. And it's if, if you say you want to build com companies that are sustainable, that think about business holistically, it's almost impossible to do that and saddle them with the sorts of, again, short time horizons on those terms that these sorts of companies put on them building holistically means deep investment and it takes time so that's it's very much built into our approach and our model is giving these companies the time to build something that is good good for the company good for the employees good for the environment where even as you say even in the west we've seen the ills associated with traditional private uh, equity models the other thing i would add is i think even the private equity funds that are doing things well or better in Africa tend to be dealing in areas that wouldn't be considered risk capital. You know, so there are some funds that are doing, for instance, factoring, which is great. So, I mean, to explain basically trade finance where uh, a, a small company has already done a deal and, and they just need cash flow while they wait for their accounts receivable from the company that's bought whatever product from them. And that's great. That's an important aspect of finance. 
But the risk on that's obviously much lower because the invoice has been signed and you know the capital will come through. We look at that and say that's it's important, but there is really a place for companies that can't even sign that deal, that are in a position where they just they, they, they can't even do that yet. And again, hence the term risk capital. And it's it's a problem not just in, in Africa, it's a problem in, in, in the West as well. A lot of money is going towards real estate, for instance. So if you're looking in terms of GDP, it looks like there's a lot of private equity money, but where it's going isn't necessarily in those productive areas. And, and you can attribute some of the challenges that the Western economies have had, 2 to 3% growth rates, to some of that. A general risk aversion and, and financial instruments using more being used as more as wealth stores than as real productive capital. And so we're looking to team up with investors that Flip, just flip the script on that and, and understand that there's a no, nowhere more so than in Africa, a dire need for investors with that kind of appetite. And there is reward. It just will take longer than your traditional private debt or traditional private equity fund w- would allow. Yeah, would you add anything to that, Kwame? Yeah, the one thing I piggybacking on off of what, David, you just had to say there is that it's it's also important to realize that, particularly in this context, where if you're going to the the English, the clues in the name, it's called a return on investment. In order for one to make a return, there has to be an investment. But it's difficult to make an investment where there has, throughout history, over a period of time, there's been little opportunity for capital formation. And so, what then happens is that if there is very little capital available within the local context to be deployed in productive um, areas of the economy, then you're not going to have any returns. You're not have, going to have the growth that you that is required. And so then the, the need for impact investment within this context is even more pronounced because without it, we're talking about a whole generation, whole nations and whole communities of people that aren't able to, not because they don't necessarily have the skill set, but just because the the capital isn't available to invest, and even now, what we're we're seeing increasingly is a lot of businesses that are are bootstrapping across the co- continent. And I think for me, nothing could be sadder than when you can see what is clearly a hundred million dollar, two hundred million dollar um, valuation business if they were in Silicon Valley or wherever else, struggling largely because the million or two million dollars that is required to be invested isn't there. But let me also add this. The other challenge I think that is also important to, to your question, David, about how is this different from you know, regular private equity is the fact that it's, it, I don't believe that the returns in this segment of the market are, are lower than in private equity. If anything, I would argue that there is a potential for the returns in this segment of the market to be far superior, but it does require a lot more handholding. In that, so as I said, in, in, in my past life, I worked in you know the, the power space where basically a private equity investor could hire a team of lawyers and accountants and finance people and whatnot and product development experts to put together a project and then write a check for $200 million and deploy $200 million into a project. And they might attend a few board meetings and have management reviews and whatnot, but nothing near the so, sort of handholding that is required to take a business started by somebody who is in let's say their mid to late 30s and doesn't isn't necessarily as 
optimally integrated to the global economy as the business could be and say, I'm going to help you on this journey to get you to the point where you can scale and grow and sell products into Whole Foods or whoever else all over the world. And I think what's happened is that in the past is investors haven't necessarily shied away from just the, by virtue of the fact that the returns are lower, but it's a lot more work than they are accustomed to doing. And it's easier, therefore, to go for the, the opportunities at the higher end of the market with respect to infrastructure and things of that nature. Yeah, no, that uh, that makes sense. I agree. Like, I agree with you. I think the opportunity is massive. And I, I my, you know, my sense of it is not that the, yeah, it's not that the traditional investors are not seeing that there's upside. They just think, oh, it's too far away. It's too risky. It's too capital intensive. And so, like, why bother? We also just don't have a lot of investor demand for it absolutely you know like and that's a really big factor we think of investment managers as i think there is a tendency to think about institutional investors as oh it's a methodical and you know rigor it's little emotion is at play and i think they do a better job of kind of stripping out the noise and and all that it's still very much hard it's still very hard to to ignore where demand is going. It's why we saw in like 1999 and the run-up in the technology bubble, you had all sorts of investment managers loading up on technology stocks because they were getting questions from people. We're missing out on this opportunity and look at the returns we're experiencing. And we're not seeing investors on the ground in developed countries really still yet like clamoring across the board for it. So it has to be investor led and then they see these sort of obstacles and hurdles and they just they don't have experience their background there so when it, there's this sort of unknown you just write it off at the opportunity set without giving it a fair chance which absolutely but also the other thing that also happens to your point david is i think that in this case it's both not there being let's say enough demand from lps demanding hey can we look at something in africa but also the gps aren't incentivized to put the products together for a number of reasons chief among them is the fact that as the private equity traditional private equity models are, are structured it incentivizes fund managers to raise larger funds Right, because ultimately they're making money off management fees. If I've got a two hundred million dollar fund and I'm charging two two percent management fees, then you know we can get the nice office in downtown Accra or New York or London or whatnot, and we can hire the Ivy League MBA grads and whatnot and put them on six figure salaries. But if I'm sitting on a two hundred million dollar fund, I'm not going to give that money out five hundred thousand dollars at a time. So then I'm incentivized to do thirty million dollar tickets, fifty million dollar tickets because I need to get that money out the door as quickly as possible. So then that becomes one of the, the things that we had to innovate around to say, we have to come up with a structure that doesn't then shackle us to the only way we can make money is of raising a large fund and charging fees off that, that base. Yeah. That's a really interesting, uh, really interesting point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Can you also just, I like to try to bust jargon wherever we can, because there are people listening to the podcast coming from different layers of understanding. So GPLP, so general partner versus limited partner. Can you just, Corbin or anybody who wants to take that, just what's the, describe that breakdown, why that distinction is important. Okay. 
All right, sure. I'll, I'll do that quickly. So the, the GP is, in, in essence, for all intents and purposes, the fund manager, right? So they are the, shall we say, the financial institution that is putting together a product and going out to investors to say, hey, I'm raising a fund to invest in, say, Canadian tech um, stock or Ghanaian um, agriculture stock and or, or, or businesses and what have you, and then invites investors to to participate or to invest in that fund. And so the investors that come into that fund and give the fund manager or the GP, the general partner, their money would then typically be referred to as the LPs or the limited partners, both legal terms, which basically speaks to liability and risk, the allocation of risk within the, the, the parties. But that's basically what those two terms mean. Right. So you, as a limited partner, you own equity in this fund. So you're an owner of it, but you're not running the fund. You're limited. You're a passive partner who's there to put up capital and, and enjoy the returns, not manage it on an ongoing basis. That's right. That's great. Thank That's you. Right. That's a great uh, breakdown. Jonathan, I want to just give a chance to come back to you because we I, I steered the conversation back away from you. But do you want to add anything? No, I think it's been a really good conversation. And what I would segue off of Uh, what we've just discussed is that at third way capital, I think there's some distinctive things that we're trying to pull together into one organization and that, and they include just good, solid business savvy. I don't think any of us see this as a charitable initiative. We we're actually seeing this as business should be a force for good. It just should be. Why wouldn't it be to, to suggest that it's somehow divorced from intentional efforts to bring products and services that are actually genuinely transformative. Why would you do otherwise? <laughs> are we trying to be extractive? Is that what it means to do normal business? Uh, it is for some people, but we don't think that should be the norm. So that would be one thing. But I think the other thing is this intimate understanding of the African environment and elsewhere in the global South means that we understand the cultural dynamics. We understand the social political kind of scene And so it's not a frightening environment for us. So we can be a kind of a bridge or a demystifying kind of service to those who want to do something like that. We can take the mystery out of it and we can show that the risks are not considerably different to taking on a venture here in North America, if you know how to play in that environment. So I think, and, and then the third piece would be the impact piece that we Between us, we understand what sustained and meaningful impact looks like. We also know how to go about measuring it. Measurement is another sort of esoteric world or, or, or sector all of its own, and yet it doesn't need to be that complex. And one of the things that we are placing a high priority on is being able to show both to track metrics in terms of These kinds of activities should be resulting in these kinds of changes, socially and economically, and to be able to demonstrate that causality, or at least to show evidence of it, but also to be able to monitor actual systemic change taking place. And that could be everything from really basic numbers, like how many people have jobs, to the impact on household well-being, to how much water is being used to to harvest a particular or process a particular crop versus we can actually reduce that water consumption and create a more sustainable operation. So there's some very key, basic, but key things that we can be tracking. So these are the things we're trying to 
pull together into one. Like, like David said, we're not just a fund; we're a venture firm. It's quite a robust operation that we're trying that we're working on, on setting up here. And you have plans to like your long term? Would you see yourself if everything went according to plan, expanding beyond Ghana? Or yeah, my mic's on, so I'll keep talking. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, has experience and connections elsewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. David does. I do. So we've looked at operations, for example, in South Africa, particularly ones that look like they have potential in terms of impact up through the rest of the continent. My background, is, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Southeast Asia, so that would be another area that in the really long term, we'd look off the continent to elsewhere, but a step at a time. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I think just to add to the point that um, Jonathan just made, I think even the growth trajectory of the businesses in Ghana we invest in has to be Pan-African, right? We, When you think about a business that is doing well in Ghana, I see no reason why we can't then replicate that success story in Kenya, in Senegal, in you know a number of other countries. And so we have to very quickly then get clued up and get plugged into the ecosystems in those countries so that as our businesses scale, we can take advantage of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you guys are right. Like, where are you at in the stage of development for the your initial fund? And you said you're in the you know, of into fundraising. So just continue the, you guys came together, you had the idea, you thought through the angle, you did some financial modeling, presumably around like, how are we going to structure these? I'm just curious for the the, the continual, continuation of that story of the development of the, from idea to practice. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, it's, for us, it was very much market driven. I think uh, I said to someone once, I, she had a, she just released a book and she said, and I said to her, congrats, this is amazing. You've released this really good book. And she said, what are you up to? And I said, we're starting a fund and she said oh that's much harder (laughs) so and and it is but it's also a joy i think if you're able to get out of thinking with the lenses or within the boxes that i think uh traditional finance puts you in you can start to really have some fun and as i say for us it's it was market driven we sought to understand what sort of terms would make sense for our future partners if you like and our structure is on paper, it's a, it's a holding model because what we're after is time. We're after time and deep investment and it just did not make sense. But it took us, it didn't make sense, sorry, to go for you know traditional private equity structure. As Kwame alluded to, there's also issues with just the size that we would need to run a private, traditional private equity and it just didn't make sense. It took us four months to get there. So even for us, we had to do some battle with just traditional thinking. And we started with it with a debt fund and the models just did not work. And the more we thought about it, the more we thought about the stuff we wanted, the businesses we work with to have the opportunity to do around impacts, the more we realized that even if the numbers did work, they were extremely constraining. It took four months to get there and that probably pushed our plans uh, on fundraising probably a couple of months as well. So we got to the point where we were happy to go to market after testing with investors. Obviously, we spent probably around three months talking to investors, getting their feedback. Is this a product that you'd be interested in? And then segmenting, really starting to understand who we should be talking to. I remember you once said to us, don't sell to the unsellable. And there are lots of good people out there with really good motivations. Not all of them are going to 
be a good fit for us and we needed to accept that and move on quickly. So that testing was integral. And I think it's allowed us to move quite a bit more quickly once we got to the phase where we're actually having pitch sessions. And that began, I would say, mid-September. I believe we're about six weeks or just over six weeks in now. And it's been mostly positive. Uh, We're talking to people in the philanthropist community and family offices. Basically, we realized quite quickly we're not a product that uh, a DFI, Development Finance Institution, would match up well with it's such a long-term hold and that we're really yeah the, the we're really asking equity holders to buy into the company as opposed to be limited partners uh, we're not looking at institutional investors for the same reason so in a nutshell we're not looking for limited partners we're looking for co-investors or co-owners of third-way capital people that come in with a deep commitment as we have but also possibly expertise as well to bring into what we're doing and as I say, very quickly, that helped us to segment that towards philanthropists and family offices. They've been good conversations. They've been deep conversations. But again, when you're looking for that kind of alignment to that kind of partnership, if you like, it just takes longer. So our conversations go on weeks and weeks because it's very much a dating process for us and making sure we're happy with who you know, with who we, we might begin getting to bed with because they're going to be our partners for, for the long haul. So we anticipate closing this round middle of December and said that it is an evergreen fund. So it's not as though when we close the, close the round, we're then close to future partnerships for the next five years or whatever. We'll, we'll continue to speak to potential partners, but we, we needed to have a, a critical mass of capital to start with, obviously. So that required that this first round have a, a finite end and, and have a definitive end to it. I yeah. think it's really interesting to just tease out your quad, but you, you had mentioned it earlier in yours, different, a different practical challenge with kind of size of the fund and that having a practical impact, you know, impact on the, the size of the investments you end up making. If the bigger the amount of money you have to deploy, you just have to find bigger deals to just logistically get enough investments made. And so same thing here on the, on the kind of mo- like the modeling side, when you you said this quickly, but you started out with the idea of being a debt fund and that appealed to you in a lot of ways because the you tell me if I'm mischaracterizing you here, David, that appealed to you in a lot of ways because you, it's, it's a little easier to deploy debt. It's a little less cumbersome. It's also leaves a lot of value on the table for the original entrepreneur and founder who's not selling equity in the business to get access to that capital, which in some cases is really beneficial. In other cases, they, they're selling off their business at an early stage where they we could get more for it later, but they need the capital. But the problem with it is it's just you were struggling to see how that could be economically viable. But you had to think a lot about, wait a minute, who's the investor? <laughs> what rates of return are they going to in our who's the investor in our who are our limited partners? And what type of rate of return are they going to expect? And can we generate that giving capital as debt rather than equity? And like some of these practical challenges, I think, are just really interesting to tease out for people because until you sit down and think through all of the details, it might be easy to miss some of those challenges. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're 100% in terms of what investors always do a a risk return assessment. And you're going to, yes, we can do a lot of work to de-risk the investment on the African side for sure. But 
when they look at their portfolio, it is going to be on the higher side of the risk. So that being the case, they wouldn't look for a product that was priced something close to a bond, which is where we were at. To make it work, we'd have to price price our interest rates, our interest payments, sorry, for investments way down in around three, two and a half percent. And it just didn't make a lot of sense. It, it made much more sense to give investors access to that upside that you can only gain through the equity investment. So that's one thing. Another thing, actually, we should have touched on this a bit more was we are pretty bent on, on employing employee ownership models into our portfolio businesses. So that's, 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 that's I hope you're going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that, talk about that. What does that mean? Yeah. And why is that important to you? In a nutshell, not to rag on, on, on Western capitalism too much, but we look at capitalism and we see that lots of good things that it does. But what we're in now is late stage capitalism, where you start to see a bit more of the cracks in the system, which is essentially that after you have a company that starts an SME, the current models, the prevalent models of trans, transition of ownership when the owner passes on or retires often are private equity or the stock market. Unfortunately, those models lead to uh, distance ownership, if you like. Ownership where people have stake in the company, but they aren't involved in... Sorry, one second. Yeah. But they aren't involved in any other way. And so the agency for the CEO running the company shifts fully into sort of profit line and making sure that this company is as profitable as possible because that's what the stock market requires. And 80% of companies in the US are, are, are held on the stock market. That kind of pressure is a lot of the reason why we're seeing this source of negative, event, uh, negative effects that we get in North American and Western companies is that you've got CEOs that might be willing to do the right things, but every quarter they have to face the dreaded quarterly earnings reports. So we want to shift the incentives a bit or a lot. And we realize the only way to do that is to build structurally, is to build structurally ownership structures that actually allow CEOs, whoever, whichever executives are running the company to consider the other stakeholders involved. And one of the best ways to do that is to make probably the, the most important stakeholder, the worker, the employee, a shareholder in the company as well. Then that begins to align the interests of management with the interests of the employees. It begins to reduce the uh, distance between the ownership of the company, which is now at least to some extent the employees. And it begins to shift decision-making in a direction where it's starting to affect what's been called the triple bottom line. It's starting to affect the worker well-being, environmental and environmental well-being, and, and social and community well-beings. So for us, we look at Africa and we see all this potential, but we're also really careful to try and problem solve around not ending up where some of the economies in the uh, in the West have, have ended up, and to try and build, exemplify, and support structures that, first of all, again, align the incentives where they need to be aligned, but also distribute wealth. Again. Speaking about late-stage capitalism, we see wealth concentrations that are unprecedented. All the economic data is showing us we're getting to the state that we were prior to capitalism, where essentially we're acting as serfs and landlords. The top 1% of the world owns uh, more than the majority of wealth, so it's sorry, 10%. It's, it's something we, we look to head off at the past, if you like. Obviously, we're a team of three. We hope to grow. So it isn't just about what we can do. It's about setting those models so that whoever comes in 
after us to do a similar thing says there's other ways to do this there are other ways to build a company there are ways to build a company such that in the transition when this first benign owner leaves it isn't going to the hands of a private equity company that really is just trying to is trying to gut the company and then sell it or to uh, to an IPO where it's again you, you're stuck with incentives that have nothing to do with the well-being of the workers and communities that they live in so back to your question taking equity stakes in the companies allows us to then transition in over time transition whatever equity that we have towards employees and then obviously encourage our, our partners you know who own the companies to do the same yeah that's awesome Kwabena Jonathan do you want to add anything on that no you're good okay um can uh, mindful of, of time here maybe just a couple more questions but on the impact measurement and management side of things how do you think about you've talked a lot about what you're hoping to achieve how do you plan to try to keep track of that and get better at that over time so how to operationalize measuring impact yeah how, like at, at the highest level if you are trying to achieve some positive good how do you plan to track it and get better yeah. at it over time <laughs> firstly just out of the gate one has to always be keeping it simple there are capabilities especially large companies have capabilities to keep track of complex sources of data that measure different things and a we're not a size of company that can do that and b our portfolio companies won't have those capabilities at nor do the majority of similar companies in the west so the short answer is firstly that what outcomes you're aiming for what kinds of systemic change you're aiming for you keep it very simple so that you're only dealing with a few indicator sets but the second thing is that you and this is what i already do with my clients in 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 my own consulting work is you teach them to think in terms of outcomes as de- defining how the things that they're doing are going to change behaviors in a given system and to be able to quantify those specific things for example if i'm working with a med- medical technology company they're looking to change how things happen not just for example within for say patients for example who are in hospitals but to change the experience of the medical workers and the result of that should be measurable in terms of certain impacts and in order for you to understand meaningfully what those impacts are you don't need more than maybe 3 or 4 or 5 indicators uh of what kinds of changes you're trying to achieve one of the other indicators is of course financial that there has to be an economic component to this there has to be an economic engine that's working and there has to be value that's being created that is being measured in financial terms and so showing up in the bottom line and the efficiencies of the portfolio company are showing sorry Yeah, the revenue is showing up in the top line, the value that you're creating, but the efficiency is in the bottom line. So all of those are going to be components of what we're we're measuring. We see them as a kind of an entire set of of uh, metrics. The the other thing I'll just add is that we are talking to people who are pioneering the use of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in this field, and. where technology can help us to pursue this kind of simplicity and this and make it easier to capture data well we want to be on that and incorporating that great that's great 
Just as a heads up, I, the David's previous answer about employee ownership, if there's going to be an entire episode on that concept. It'll either come out just before or after this one. So if anybody's listening, that's another podcast in the pipeline. Maybe I'll just, um, two final questions. One, is there anything else any of you want to bring up that I maybe hadn't asked about that you think is interesting for people who are listening? I think it's probably worth... Sorry, have I frozen? Are you frozen? Somebody's frozen. Oh, can I can hear you okay. I yeah. can hear you, yeah. Okay, all right. Kwabana, maybe you should give a, a quick snapshot of the kinds of uh, companies we have been looking at, just to give a sense of the, the the kind of thing that we are interested in involving ourselves in. Yeah, sure. At the moment, we have a growing pipeline of potential investee companies. And they, as we mentioned earlier, we are, we're, we are sector agnostic, but... Some of the companies that we've looked at are played in spaces like, so the food and beverage space, superfoods and health foods are actually very popular and I think present a very interesting opportunity when it comes to exports. And so we are looking at a couple of opportunities in there. And so just there's one company, for example, that we're looking at that is making uh, Moringa tea. There's another one that is doing almond milk with a a fairly high al- almond content in that because usually they ha- there are so many other additives and whatnot. That's their picture. It's organic as well. There is another company that we're looking at that is also doing cosmetics. So this is lotions and creams and soaps made out of shea butter, which is one of the fairly you know popular here in Ghana. But it's also globally, its popularity has grown such that it's widely available you know, across the West, I would say. And then finally, we've also looked at some companies that are also looking at you know, clean tech. There's a business that we've looked at that is recycling plastic and turning them into um, building blocks, as well as an opportunity we're looking at in the real estate space where this is a business that is d- doing affordable housing projects using rammed earth technology. Very exciting stuff there. So that's just a quick snapshot of some of the businesses that we're looking at. I, I will add that we tend to like export-oriented businesses, if we're being honest, because I think as one of the ad- ad added benefits of that, you have a global market, which then reduces your exposure to any singular market and also reduces your foreign exchange risk as well. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. David or, or Jonathan? Did I cover that? Jonathan? Okay. So maybe just to to end off, if if people want to learn a little bit more about what you guys are doing, where do they get a hold of you? Where do they find out more? So our website uh, is probably a good place to start. It's uh, thirdwaycapital.co. Obviously, the requisite W's in front of that. And we can be reached by email at info, I-N-F-O, info at thirdwaycapital.co. And um, T-H-I-A-R-D. I'll include actually all this in the show notes if people are listening here. Awesome. Listen, I thanks a lot for taking the time. It's I just think it's really cool that this kind of because I've been chatting with you and known Jonathan David, I've known you guys for a while and seeing the journey throughout the different stages. And it's you know, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to wrestle with. There's a lot of challenges along the way. And so I just think it's really cool when people go about tackling those problems and don't just sit around on the sidelines complaining about it and just do something about it. So kudos to you guys. Good luck with the journey. I hope to have you guys on again in the future where we're going to be talking about 
your next your next fundraise or the successes you've had, I think it'd be pretty cool to update it and and follow continue following that journey. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for giving us this opportunity opportunity, David. And you've been a part of our journey, so it's a really cool sort of bookend at this point as we're raising the fund to have you pull us together and talk a bit about some of the exciting stuff that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we'll have you on again soon, guys. All the best. Thank you, David. All right. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.